Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of the book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is the Farm podcast.store that is the farm podcast all one word dot store and also please consider signing up for the farm's patron you get two additional full-length shows per month that's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content okay so today's guest is making his debut on the farm he is the founder of the coalition against voter disenfranchisement and election fraud he is also the curator of the excellent website kevdef.org and is presently investigating the mysteries of joan Bennett ramsey's death he is george of kevdef.org george thank you so much for dropping by today yeah absolutely it's great to be here i've you know admired your work for a long time. I read Vice Up for years, and it's uh, great to finally meet you and get the chance to be on your show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we'll have to hang out in real life sometime. It was kind of cool that I guess you're only about two or three hours from me. So um, by the standards of West Virginia, that's pretty dang close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So today's show is principally going to be centered around a bizarre cult. Hence, it is another installment in the farm's ongoing Annie Mystery Babylon series. The title is, of course, derived from the legendary Mystery Babylon series launched by conspiracy titan and former naval intelligence officer William Milton Cooper during the early 90s. The series purported to tell the hidden role secret societies and cults have played in world history. A fascinating and relevant topic, to be sure, but one of which Mr. Cooper did not always bring the best scholarship to, and this is despite having an entire episode dedicated to his bibliography. So... This is the farm's attempt to demystify this topic, if that is even possible, and also to shed light on secret societies and cults that often fly under the radar. And today's subject is about as far under the radar as you can get. It is a mysterious outfit called the White Eagle Lodge, along with its purported paramilitary arm, the White Eagle Underground. This is an incredibly fascinating topic, guys, and I am happy to have George here to help me cover it. He's actually one of the only researchers, actually, I think about the only researcher, period, out there who has attempted to shed light on this outfit. All right, so, George, to start off with, why don't you tell us a bit about the official history of the White Eagle Lodge? Sure. So, officially, with you know the general biography that's known, the White Eagle Lodge is this... Uh, sort of new age spiritualist organization that was founded in Britain during the 1930s. It was founded by a couple, uh, Grace Cook and Ivan Cook. And Grace Cook was a medium. She had, had the small church in England for a little while. She had many clients who vouched for her ability to you know, channel spirits and communicate with them. One of them was actually the former British prime minister, uh, Ramsey, yeah, Ramsey MacDonald. And so she did that for a while, but at a certain point in her medium career, she became convinced that she had actually been able to channel the spirit of this uh, supernatural spirit known as White Eagle. And White Eagle was this, I mean, quasi-deity. I don't know if they would really consider it that, but White Eagle was basically a spirit who had basically this set of moral teachings and guidelines for how people should live their life. And the idea was that White Eagle was communicating this through various people who could you know, channel his teachings. And so uh, Grace Cook essentially started this outfit known as the White Eagle Brotherhood to share this knowledge that she 
claimed to be receiving from White Eagle, and that eventually grew into the White Eagle Lodge organization that she and her husband founded. And the White Eagle Lodge uh, drew in some reasonably interesting people, and just to be clear at the outset, definitely don't want to impugn this group, just, uh, you know, this group, at least as it stands legitimately, they certainly appear to have many people who are very sincere and doing good works and following what appear to be some virtuous teachings. For example, there was a woman who was a member of the White Eagle Lodge named Muriel Dowding. She had formerly been married to a, a RAF bomber during World War II who ended up dying, and then she ended up uh, getting into a relationship with the, uh, with the head of the I think the head of the, yeah, the Air Chief Marshal, Hugh Dowding, who was a member of the House of Lords and so a very, very high up person in British society. And Muriel Dowding was very involved in the topic of animal rights for a while. She was part of the White Eagle Lodge and she spread that philosophy throughout it. And so there was certainly no shortage of people who definitely lived very, you know, pros you know prosperous and virtuous lives through the teachings of the White Eagle Lodge. But at the same time, you can see it's marked by a number of interesting connections to British high society, which is rather interesting. And uh, ultimately, the White Eagle Lodge, which started out just as this British organization, ended up spreading to other nations in the 1980s and 1990s. In 1982, uh, a corporation was incorporated in Texas called the Church of the White Eagle Lodge, which was the soon-to-be American outfit of it. They set up this institution in Montgomery, Texas called St. John's Retreat Center. And that was basically the uh, the American location of the White Eagle Lodge. And they also set up a location in Australia as well. So that's basically you know, the organization and uh, the, the grandchildren of the Cook family are now actually running it. People like uh, Colm Hayward and Jenny Dent. So it's sort of you know been a family thing for a while. And uh, you know that, that's basically, it's a, certainly not a very well-known organization. There's not a lot of information or mentions that can be found of it, but that's basically the overt status of the White Eagle Lodge to this day. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you right quick, um, did the uh, lady who had founded it, did she have any links to, what was it, the, um, the Society for Psychical Research, I believe it is, um, in the UK? That is an interesting question. Unfortunately, I had I had not found any such links you know it's actually rather difficult to find much on Grace or Ivan Cook that isn't just a, a White Eagle Lodge biography it, you have to dig you have to dig pretty deep and you know scouring the web to really find anything at all so I could not find any links when I tried to investigate her but I, I can't rule it out either certainly it's something worth doing an even deeper dive into yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting to me because I had recently been studying uh, the Cecil block for my um, special relationship book, and um, it's not really well known, but they played a major role um, in establishing the Society for Psychical Research. And the Cecils were, I mean, probably actually still are, I mean, the most powerful families and have been in the UK for, gosh, what, 500 years or something since the reign of the first Queen Elizabeth. So, um, yeah, it would definitely be interesting to see if um, she had had links to that whole clique since... Um, the whole uh, channeling thing was very much their thing, as I understand it, or I should say, if quickly is to be believed on that end. <laughs> right. All right. So let's talk a moment about Tweet Kimball, her one-time husband, Merritt Kirk Reddick, at least I think that's how it's pronounced, an OSS and later CIA officer, and the mysterious Cherokee ranch that they helped build in Colorado. Also, how plausible are the connections to the White Eagle Lodge or Underground that these folks had? Yeah. Uh, so basically... 
this is a sort of a story of a couple, you know, some very wealthy and prominent families in the U.S. that uh, came together. And I guess it may not be overtly, you know, at first glance, overtly clear why we're talking about them and what connection they would have to the White Eagle Lodge. But there are actually some interesting similarities that continue to crop up between a lot of these entities and are suggestive of, you know, sort of deeper interlinking relationship. Uh, so Tweet Kimball was, uh, she was a woman who was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, out of a relatively wealthy family. She was a descendant, actually, of on one side of her family, the, the Montague family, which had controlled a lot of banking and corporate boards in the area for quite a while, dating back to the 19th century. Uh, she was, a, you know, the grand, I believe, the grandson of D.P. Montague, who was a very prominent and well-known uh, businessman in Chattanooga. And one, one of the daughters of D.P. Montague ended up getting married to uh, Colonel Richard Huntington Kimball, who was a, a West Point graduate in 1907. So uh, they, they were both, you know, relatively high up in the you know, local establishment there. They got married and uh, her full name, Mildred uh, Genevieve Montague Kimball, that was her name. And unsurprisingly, it was shortened to Tweet Kimball as a sort of childhood nickname. And that was what stuck with her for the rest of her life. In, uh, in 1938, she ended up uh, marrying a man named Merritt Kirk Ruddick. And Merritt, uh, Merritt Kirk Ruddick would shortly thereafter end up enlisting in the army for World War II. He ended up serving in the Office of Strategic Services, which of course most people who are listening to this will know is the precursor to the CIA. Uh, he ended up reaching the rank of first lieutenant. And then after the war, Merritt Ruddick was relatively quickly tapped by Frank Wisner to be one of his very first recruits for the, the covert operations arm of the CIA. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, Merritt Ruddick was sent over to Britain uh, early on after the CIA's inception to sort of go work with the British version of the Office of Policy Coordination, you know, I guess emphasizing the very close relationship that U.S. and British intelligence have long had with each other. So at this, you can, there are some, there are various things, uh, you know, there's not a lot out there on Merritt Ruddick. He's not a super well-known individual, even though he was pretty much the second in command of, you know, right under Frank Wisner, who was a very well-known person in the CIA's history. But you can see various, there were a couple letters uh, of him, you know, on the CIA website that you can read. There was one of him communicating with uh, Admiral Hillencoder, one of, I think, the first CIA director talking about how, you know, they had met and they wanted to make sure that they were on the same page as Frank Wisner. There's another letter in 1959 that he actually wrote to Alan Dulles uh, expressing his, uh, or Alan Dulles wrote to him thanking uh, Merritt Ruddick for expressing his uh, condolences for the death of John Foster Dulles. So he certainly did have a number of these uh, well-known con prominent contacts with people in the U.S. intelligence community. And at the same time, he was also part of this family uh, Merritt Ruddick was also part of this family uranium mining industry that was mining in Utah, which is uh, rather curious as well. So, you know, mixing business and also uh, intelligence work at the same time. And I should note as well, just to give a bit of an indication of Merritt Ruddick's background, he was the son of a man named Albert Ruddick. And Albert Ruddick was a former diplomat. He had uh, he had been overseas in, uh, at Berlin heading up their embassy, and actually Merritt Ruddick was born in Berlin while he was there, and then he came back and uh, came back, served in the State Department for a while, and then just went into private business and was managing a number of banks in the, L in the LA area. He ended up becoming one of the biggest benefactors of uh, the California Institute of Technology, aka Caltech, and he was part of all sorts of these, uh, you know, 
prominent you know societies for the wealthy and powerful he was in for example the bohemian club of san francisco actually uh, he he had a heart attack reportedly and died while he was at the bohemian grove which is interesting i don't know if there's yeah, anything more to that this yeah, is Merritt uh, Ruddick, right, or his father? His father. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, you know, Mer- Merritt Ruddick and Tweet Kimball both came from very well-connected families, and so it's perhaps not too surprising that they would have, uh, have you know, been connected with, the, with each other, but reportedly their marriage began to go sour sometime around 1954 after they'd come back from an overseas venture. And in 1954, interestingly enough, uh, the Ruddicks end up acquiring the this property in uh, Sedalia, Colorado, which is called Char- uh, Charlford Castle at the time. So at the time in the newspaper articles, there's no really real hint of any marital problems. They basically are just saying, yeah, we're buying this property. We plan to live there together with each other. And Tweet Kimball seems to be the one who's most enthusiastic about this. She basically says, yeah, I'm going to you know run a ranching operation. I'm going to introduce some you know, uh, foreign cattle to the state of Colorado. And basically it seems, you know, so at, at the time it seems like, oh, it's just a husband and wife buying a new uh, property for themselves. But within two years, Merritt Ruddick and Tweet Kimball are divorced. And there is later published that actually this was sort of in the works for a long time and that it had gotten so acrimonious just between them. They didn't even want to be on the same side of the United States. So Merritt Ruddick basically said, okay, I'll buy you any property as long as it's on the west side of the Mississippi. And so Tweet agreed, okay, I want this uh, this chair, this Charleford Castle in Sedalia. And so they he got it for her. They were divorced shortly thereafter. And then Tweet ended up moving into that, into Charleford Castle. She ended up renaming it to, uh, you know, the, the whole property to Cherokee Ranch because of her affinity for the, the Cherokee tribe. She was very, you know, seemed to be an, you know, respectful, seemed to be very admiring of Native American culture and spirituality, which I should note is a parallel with the White Eagle Lodge. There was a belief in the, uh, in there was an early White Eagle belief that White Eagle actually manifested his presence through one of the very earliest Native American chiefs. So that's another sort of similarity between the two entities, um, between these two entities already. And <clears throat> anyway, Tweet Kimball, she pretty much ended up living in uh, living in the Sedalia Castle, uh, you know, Cherokee Castle for the rest of her life. She did actually get try to get married a couple more times, and all these marriages seem to have ended too. I think she had like four marriages total. Two years after her divorce from Merritt Ruddick, she ends up uh, marrying another. She ends up marrying somebody who I forget his name at the moment, but he basically headed up this. Uh, so yeah, Glenn, yeah. His name is Glenn Walker. He lived in Aurora, Colorado, in the Denver area. He headed up this oil company. He was also a former Army intelligence person, and uh, so it would appear that uh, Tweet Kimball had a type of continuing to marry intelligence officers. But that marriage ended up ending too, not too long after. But yeah, basically, Tweet Kimball lived in this castle for uh, the rest of her life. She was a uh, kind of renounced social became a renowned socialite she had all sorts of very very prominent guests you know these guests included uh european royalty for example there was prince bernhard of the netherlands who uh i guess should know prince bernhard was also in uh clay shaw's rolodex so uh, there's an overlap there with some very interesting people and also prince bernhard has been accused multiple times of child molestation and being part of elite pedophile rings in the netherlands 
She mm-hmm. had guests, guests like Milton Friedman. Uh, she had Colorado governors, uh, Richard Lamb and Roy Romer. So basically Tweet Kimball, she ended up turning her castle into this big sort of, you know, welcoming spot, this meeting ground for all sorts of wealthy and powerful guests who she would entertain. Now, as for the uh, connections to the to any of this uh, White Eagle stuff, the the connection that you know appears to be the case is you know what was in close geographic proximity to the castle in Sedalia. Because uh, interestingly enough, in this region of the of Colorado in Sedalia, there's this other. Yeah, I was going to ask, could you put that in context, like how close it is to the uh, the Denver area? You know, so people kind of have an idea of the region you're talking about. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's not too far away. I think it's uh, somewhat southeast of Denver, but it's very close. I think within, you know, half an hour driving distance or something. Okay, so would it be kind of like uh, between Denver and Colorado Springs then? Kind of. I mean, it's, I'd say it's cl- definitely closer to Denver than it is to Colorado Springs. And at least if my geography is right, it's, I think Colorado Springs is kind of directly south of Denver, but yeah. uh, Sedalia, is a, Sedalia is just off southeast of Denver. Because yeah, Colorado Springs is only about like an hour, hour and a half or something from Denver. So yeah, I was like, I think it can't be too far. But yeah, that's um, it's interesting. There's a lot of weird stuff uh, about Colorado Springs and especially Denver. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, Colorado, this is, is sort of a big vortex of weirdness with all these major intelligence operations, pedophile rings, terror cells seemingly going on. We might get into some of that on this show. But yeah, uh, in Sedalia, Colorado, at around the same time uh, that Tweet Kimball is establishing herself, and actually this entity existed in Sedalia a couple decades before, there is this, uh, there's this entity known as the Brotherhood of the White Temple, which ha- it was set up by a man uh, who calls himself Maurice Doreal, uh, last name just D-O-R-E-A-L, and he, he set it up in the 1930s, and basically it's this, it's an organization that's heavily inspired by uh, the theosophy, which is interesting because the White Eagle Lodge, a lot of it, a lot of its language and teachings were also very much inspired by theosophy. That's sort of another uh, common element that you see crop up a lot in these groups. But basically, uh, Maurice, almost all of them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So uh, Maurice Doreal, he incorporated the the Brotherhood of the White Temple. I think he he was originally do, practicing this and. Oklahoma, but then he ended up establishing himself in Colorado in the 1940s, and he set up this group, which he called the Brotherhood of the White Temple, which is another, another sort of, you know, new age, you know, spiritual type, uh, you know, enlightenment group, and basically, uh, he, he became very interested in, in 1940, in, uh, I think it was 1948 or so, with this belief that some kind of, uh, you know, I guess either extraterrestrial or sort of, you know, monstrous, you know, supernatural race was, had taken over the Soviet Union and that there was an impending nuclear apocalypse and that he and all the members of the Brotherhood of the White Temple needed to, uh, you know, basically create this sanctuary for themselves to survive. So they started constructing. George, uh, I gotta, I gotta ask, did they, did they link it to the Jews? I, at least not overtly, not that I <laughs> saw, but I mean, I couldn't be, too, I wouldn't be too surprised if there was some undercurrent of that, especially, you know, when you talk about these groups, there's often the overt, you know, legitimate part mm. of what they do that doesn't seem to be that problematic. It's just a little weird, but then underground, the people who actually practice this stuff have darker beliefs that show up and that at least allegedly, according to this dossier that uh, we'll probably get into soon, that seems to be the 
pattern that links together a lot of these yeah, groups. But basically, yeah. they you know they created this uh, sanctuary called the Shambhala Ashrama that uh, took a couple years to build. It contained all these homes to you know stay away in, you know, worship centers, a cave to store food for themselves, and they believed you know that they would be protected by because it was a mountainous you know canyon area, and they believed that they would be protected from anything that would happen to them. And then they sort of just locked themselves away from the world. They kind of closed themselves off from outsiders. They refused to talk to the press or anything. And uh, Marie Storial ended up uh, passing away according to you know Colorado records in 1963, actually. Curiously enough, it was just six days after the assassination of Kennedy. Uh, not sure if that means anything, but once again, you know, interesting things that show up there. And Maurice Dorial, he claimed at one point to have served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps. He also claimed to have, you know, part Choctaw Native American heritage. And I mean, this stuff, you know, it's not clear whether this was accurate or not. But once again, it's interesting, it's interesting to see, you know, connections to U.S. intelligence being brought up or in connection to intelligence services in general being brought up, connections to Native American culture and spirituality brought up. And that's another you know, set of yeah, things yeah. that really links together all of these things we've been talking about. The erotics, well, like another the, thing too, to, you know, just to interrupt you briefly too, but um, also too, I mean, there's just a huge military presence in Colorado Springs with, um, you know, the Air Force Base, the Army Base. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of uh, former military types in general living in that whole area too. So, I mean, you have sort of that kind of whole milieu. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising that there's probably a staggering amount of like uh, Army intelligence and that type of thing around there in comparison to some other areas oh most definitely i you know have come to the conclusion that you know the denver area but also just the state more broadly is kind of crawling with spooks i mean you have uh yeah like you said all these military bases you have also it's a big center for the military industrial complex too you know like the lockheed martin facility in littleton colorado which kind of looms large over the the Columbine massacre that would occur. A lot of people who went to Columbine had parents who were working for that facility and similar facilities. Really, that this whole area is kind of teeming with these intelligence operatives. And the University of Denver, I believe, is also said to be one of the best, you know, training schools for CIA operatives. So absolutely, oh, when you peek over, you know, turn over any rock in Denver or the surrounding area, and you're likely to find. A bunch of spooks. That's, was, that the, uh, was that the same one that uh, uh, oversaw Project Blue Book for a lot of years? Uh, I am personally not sure, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. I'd have to check into that. It would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm sorry, did I make you lose your train of thought? <laughs> no, uh, no. I mean, I think I pretty much covered uh, you know the majority of what you know what I, I wanted to, you know, that all these groups pretty much, the the White Eagle Lodge, the the Ruddocks, the uh, and uh, and also the Brotherhood of the White Temple, all of these entities share a lot, had a lot of these things in common, you know, the, the theosophical influence, Native American culture, the seeming connections to some intelligence entities. And so it is it's not exactly too surprising that in this uh, dossier that I received, uh, to, to see that there's this claim that there's basically this underground group of this underground cult group that sort of operates through all these different entities as fronts that's in, involved in these various unsavory activities. And I guess uh, if we want to segue into talking about that, we can. Uh, well, I have one uh, brief question about Merrick Ruddick. I think you had brought up too, he was uh, involved with a company based in Utah. Yes. Uh, uh, do, you, do you know if that had any connections to one of the uh, to the Mormon Church or one of the uh, fundamentalist sects or anything like that? Not, 
I didn't see any overt mention of that, but again, you know, it, it seems, you know, there was a sort of a tangled web of business uh, connections in, uh, you know, I think his, his mining company was bought out in like 1955. It was called, I think his, his, it was called like the, the Almar uh, uranium mine. He was partnered up with some other uh, person who I couldn't find so at bring, the time. So that, this probably would have then been involved in uh, the nuclear project and what have you then, or? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I think that uh, there's a very good chance that that connection is in there somewhere that generally the business community in Utah is probably going to be tied in with that. Uh, Again, it's just, you know, so many, you know, so many different loose ends and leads to follow up on that. It's hard to get into all of them. But yeah, very plausible. The Utah connection is really interesting because that's, you know, another, I mean, that's another state along with Colorado where a lot of this black budget type stuff goes on and what have you. Um, It's another kind of haven for this stuff. So um, yeah, definitely, um, (laughs) definitely had some interesting locations that he was active out of. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Well then, let us get to some of the juicy stuff. So uh, give us a broad overview of the speculative history of the White Eagle Underground, the alleged uh, militant wing of the Lodge. Sure, yeah. So a lot. this information, I should say, comes from uh, this, this dossier that I received. Uh, it was from, a, uh, from an independent journalist in Colorado named uh, Joe Calhoun. And basically it has to do, this is the thing that first came up in some... Uh, pedophile ring cases. And basically uh, there was a man in the Houston area named Paul Schultz. Uh, Paul Schultz had been, uh, had been abusing his son, Nicholas Schultz. And, you know, the description of this abuse were very, you know, horrific and sadistic. He was taking him to be, you know, taking him to be sexually abused by other adults in addition to himself. Uh, he had been, you know, had, you know, animals crawl, you know, crawling uh, up in it up around him into his orifices. He was, you know, tortured and very, very severely mistreated. And at the same time, you know, uh, beyond the the pedophilia aspect of it, uh, Nicholas Schultz was also in a position to witness many of the other activities that this group that this group was involved in. And you know, this cult, this sort of cult that uh, Paul Schultz was involved in, along with many other unidentified adults, was involved you know, in sort of, you know. Basically, you know, adoration of Adolf Hitler. They would often wear these, you know, you know, Nazi-like uniforms. They would talk about, you know, they would talk about the importance of, uh, you know, basically, you know, pure bloodlines. They would even tell Nicholas that, you know, he was from, you know, this important, you know, bloodline that was le- leading him to be a future leader of the this group. They were involved in all sorts of organized crime activities, such as. Uh, you know, the importation of drugs across the Mexican border, and also even more disturbingly importing, uh, you know, captive children across the Mexican border to be abused and reportedly used in snuff films uh, or sold to other pedophiles. And, you know, they, de- they describe activities like, you know, shooting at, you know, shooting at ships and off the coast of Galveston, Texas, murdering police officers and, you know, cut, cutting off hands of people who they had kidnapped. And so, you know, this was a very sick group, but uh, the basically the people who were, there was this one person, this sort of unidentified person who's kind of the author of a lot of the material in the dossier. Uh, and I, I don't you know, know exactly who they are. I have some suspicions, but can't identify them. But basically this person was, uh, he was involved in this sort of investigation for the NYPD 
of uh, of this you know reported terrorism threat that they were they were getting word that there was this uh, these you know these right wing group, underground groups that were threatening some kind of terrorism uh, operation against New York City, and so he was sort of a you know consultant helping to investigate the prevalence of this threat from these you know these far right groups on New York City, and he you know started to become aware of this as sort of entity known as the that was calling itself the White Eagle Underground that was uh, responsible for, it was threatening these uh, you know terrorist plots and was also involved in a lot of these other things like child trafficking, child abuse, and uh, drug trafficking as well. And sort of piecing together from these accounts that these abused children would give, in addition to Paul Schultz, there was another child victim named Lauren, who described being victimized by many of the, just victimized by some of the same people who Nick Schultz also described. And both Nick Schultz and uh, this child, Lauren, both seemed to mention that, you know, the White Eagle underground, they you know, overtly they mentioned this term as something that they had heard the adults around them talking about. So, you know, started this man, this investigator started to piece together indications that there was a, uh, that there was this group, you know, this group calling itself the White Eagle Underground that was involved in all sorts of unsavory activities like this. And, you know, in the, in the later part of the dossier, the last six pages where he really talks about the full extent of, you know, what this group was reportedly up to, he basically said the White Eagle Underground is its ultimate goal really is, you know, the destabilization of, uh, of the United States, of, you know, of these major, of these government institutions that's basically trying to, uh, you know, take, take them all down. It's primarily made up of, it's, you know, foot soldiers are primarily these white supremacist elements like the Aryan nations. Uh, at the high level, the people who are said to run the White Eagle Underground, what's known as the Star Chamber, which definitely does borrow some terminology from the official White Eagle Lodge. And this is terminology that Nick Schultz say that the, said that the group was using. The, the Star Chamber is said to be made up of these high level US intelligence operatives and the uh, CIA and the army, and also was said to have liaisons with these foreign uh, terrorist entities from the Middle East and also Germany and Russia. So basically it's this, uh, I guess, you know, sort of international coalition, if you will, of these uh, far-right forces that make it their mission to carry out acts of terror that are, you know, brutalize the population and destabilize and ultimately delegitimize the United States government. Uh, they're one of their biggest planned targets reportedly was New York City. They were planning, uh, they're planning biological warfare activities with, uh, you know, bugs such as anthrax and botulism and they had plans to you know go around and you know, use stick pins and whatever to infect people and you know, create these plagues that would spread which i guess is another timely subject given what we're dealing with now with covid and also they were said according to nick schultz to have arsenals full of planes and helicopters that they could use to you know fly you know to uh, you know, commit other terrorism acts so basically this was a group that had massive weapon massive weapons arsenals uh, they had a, a steady supply of, you know, f steady financial supply from uh, covert operations such as drug trafficking and child trafficking. And they were involved in these, you know, they were involved in white supremacism and also involved in the very sadistic abuse of children. So that's, that's sort of the, you know, a thumbnail sketch of the entire group and what they were alleged to be involved in. And like I said, they operated, according to this dossier, through these different, fr through these different sort of fronts, such as the, um, such as the White Eagle Lodge in Texas, the Brotherhood of the White Temple in Sedalia, Colorado, the the Kimball Castle, the, you know, the Cherokee Ranch Castle, the Tweed Kimball owned was said to be another center for 
for their activities and actually reportedly this this person who was the investigator for the NYPD or this person who was contracted by the NYPD to investigate this stuff even said that apparently one of the locations that Nick Schultz described being abused in was the Cherokee Ranch, which of course leads a potentially more sinister outlook on all the guests who Tweet Kimball was bringing, especially given that at least one of them, Prince Barnhart, was known to be a pedophile. So that, that's basically this, the overarching idea of this group. And it's you know a series of seemingly wild accusations that you know one might be inclined to dismiss as wild-eyed conspiracism, but a lot of this comes from you know, an official law enforcement investigation that the NYPD was doing and getting, uh, you know, it was evidently taking this very seriously. And it's not something that can therefore immediately just be dismissed as, you know, crazy speculation. It seems to have some solid basis in actual facts of how these, uh, you know, and it comes from these actual reports of child victims as well. All right. So um, could you get into a bit of like what the speculative history was of um, this, you know, underground group from what I remember from the dossiers? Because I believe it, it would claim that it had its origins actually in Nazi Germany. Right. And there was like some kind of connection, I think, to the white Russian underground, too. Yeah, not I think it was not necessarily Nazi Germany. It was actually dating back even farther than that. Uh, it had. Basically, the, the claim was that the, uh, the original source of this ideology was the, was the so-called Order of the White Eagle in Poland. And the, you know, this is something that I can't really verify, but I, I should note it is interesting that the Order of the White Eagle in Poland did actually use, it used the Maltese cross just like the Knights of Malta did. And so even though there's no direct evidence of this, there is an interesting commonality there where it appears that there might be some know inspiration that came from the Knights of Malta or even some overlap in the personnel or aims of it but basically uh, it's claimed that this sort of this this knighthood order that was uh, known as the Order of the White Eagle in Poland was kind of the inspiration for this ultimate uh, you know White Eagle for all this talk about the White Eagle and that was the what inspired the the White Eagle Lodge to be constructed in the first place and it you know sort of further claimed that this uh, this ideology also took root in the in the United States through these prime movers like Richard Huntington Kimball, who was claimed to be uh, involved in founding the post-World War I Ku Klux Klan. And also, uh, and Merritt Ruddick was said to be, uh, basically was said to be involved in established in helping to establish this group in Sedalia. So it, the dossier makes a lot of these claims of how these different people you know, came together, how this ideology sort of leapfrogged from Europe back in the 19th in the 19th century all the way to America and sort of talks about how all these groups all these different groups uh, kind of unified together behind this uh, behind the sort of plan which was ultimately rooted in the kind of anti-semitism and you know idea of Aryan supremacy that theosophy kind of served as the initial inspiration for so that that's sort of the that's the general idea of how this group kind of came to be, and of course through its frequent liaisons with intelligence services, with people like uh, with people like Merritt Ruddick, it seems to, uh, that's the sort of idea of how it grew into this uh, into being so well joined at the hip with a lot of these intelligence operations, being involved in things like drug trafficking and child trafficking, and you know these uh, psychological warfare operations as well. That's sort that's the thrust of what the dossier says about the history 
What's interesting too, because if I remember correctly, I think the dossier claimed that um, um, the White Eagle Underground first started to come over here after the Second World War, um, which, uh, given Wisner's role, um, you know, obviously in some of the efforts to recruit um, the various Quislings and uh, former Nazis and so forth for Operation Bloodstone and some of the other activities um, that he was involved in. Um, there is, you know, some compelling connections you could make with that, certainly. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it certainly the timeline does appear to fit. I mean, you have the fact that, I mean, Merritt Ruddick first gets into, seems to get into the intelligence services right around the time of World War II. And like you said, works right under Frank Wisner as he's helping to you know, preserve some of the uh, Nazi intelligence operations and, you know, bring them under the dominion of the U.S. intelligence. And that at the same time, you see that the Brotherhood of the White Temple is set up, seemingly set up officially in the 1940s. The White Eagle Lodge was set up only a couple years before, uh, before the outbreak of World War II. And by the time, and fascism, of course, had already been growing in, in various parts of Europe at that point. So, it, it certainly, if you look at the overt histories of these groups, even though you can't find direct evidence that there has been this, you know, secret ideology underneath, there certainly is, uh, you know, it certainly is very consistent with these allegations. It's all seemingly springing up around the same time, and it's all flowing from this, uh, from this, you know, incredibly theosophy-inspired uh, belief set of beliefs as well. So, the, and the fact that multiple children, multiple child victims in the Houston area, we're talking about these same uh, these same entities and mechanisms of control, and we're you know making reference to White Eagle, and sometimes even making reference to these this seeming terrorist cell with all these weapons, including planes stockpiled. It does add up to a very interesting picture and suggests that this uh, this under this White Eagle underground is not just a, a figment of this person's imagination; that it really is uh, a genuine entity that sprung up and that seemingly started started out of this uh you know with these occult with these occult groups with this sort of racially tinged ideology and it was quickly fused with u.s intelligence to become what it allegedly is today yeah i mean it's just incredible so i mean i take it then you um, generally think that the out you know the allegations there is a credibility to them um especially with calhoun and what have you well you don't think calhoun that was the guy who actually compiled most of the dossier though it was uh, an unknown source right right uh i mean i can go going through the dossier i mean it it starts out with these uh it starts out with a couple pages uh from the uh from the Boulder Police Department, and that's uh, something we. Pro the reason I came into this in the first place was because of its alleged connection to the death of John Benet Ramsey uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And the the first several of these pages were this person uh, tell basically a Boulder Police Department summary of this person telling them all about the White Eagle Underground and what he believed the connection was to the death of John Benet Ramsey. Then after that, there's an official police report uh, that uh, Nicholas Schultz's mother, Belinda Schultz, had made to the Perlin Texas Police Department basically was chronicling the various disclosures that Nick Schultz had made to her about his abuse at the hands of his father, Paul Schultz, and these other people. Then after that, there's a there's a, a basically a summary from the Cult Awareness Network that was also investigating some of these pedophile ring uh, things with, with Paul Schultz. And then after that, there's this <clears throat> six pages of summary that this person does about the white eagle you know the general history and philosophy of the white eagle underground so yeah there's a decent amount that comes from whoever this investigator was but at the same time there's also a, a fair amount of uh 
you know, just law enforcement records and th independent things substantiating this. And that the fact that, you know, even the, these investigative reports that this person is writing are apparently NYPD reports. So it's not as if it's just some random guy. This stuff is actually sanctioned by the New York City Police Department who see there, there's evidence of this actual real terrorist threat and that it's important to get to the bottom of where it's coming from. So even though it's not uh, possible to attribute you know, exactly where this came from, there is a, just a general ring of credibility with this whole thing that it's part of a real you know, law enforcement investigation. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible, you know, I mean, um, I was initially somewhat dubious when I looked at it, because again, you know, I've spent years uh, researching this, this kind of material, I'd never heard of this thing before. But I mean, yeah, after, you know, reviewing some of the sources that appeared to have and what have you, it was just, you know, it was really incredible. I mean, this, uh, it kind of seems like, I mean, it was this body that a lot of us had kind of, uh, you know, had long believed existed within some of these far right paramilitary circles, but we had never uh, really Really quite found the smoking gun but um yeah this is uh definitely gets us pretty close to that i would say at a minimum <laughs> i would think so yeah it's kind of like the you know that this you know what they call the white eagle underground is kind of the i guess you know the sub layer of you know all these over all these surface level groups that you know seem somewhat connected to the stuff but also seem you know legitimate enough on the surface i think that what really goes on is that you have an underground cult basically, you know, tied with these intelligence services and that it's, you know, basically, you know, sort of stealing ideology from all these other groups and it's sort of turning it into this weird Frankenstein's monster and it, uh, of, you know, an ideology that becomes the guiding light of, you know, how, of all these covert operations that go on, whether it's these terrorist cells or whether it's human trafficking or drug trafficking, it's, you know, it's, uh, has a lot in common with things that we've seen before and yeah, I, I agree that this could be part of, you know, finally explaining a lot of what really goes on behind the scenes and, you know, under the, uh, under the, you know, the surface of what happens in our country. Absolutely. Well, okay, let's uh, get into a topic uh, that you are uh, quite interested in. It's uh, obviously the uh, death of John Bennett Ramsey. Uh, so uh, can you get into a little bit more of how this ties into the White Eagle group? Yeah, sure. So just to give a background on JonBenet Ramsey for people who haven't heard of her case, uh, JonBenet Ramsey is a she's a six year old girl who uh, who lived in Boulder, Colorado, and on December 26, 1996, the day after Christmas, she was found brutally murdered in her family's basement. She had been strangled. She had been beaten on the head, and uh, according to the medical evidence, she had also been sexually assaulted, and. This has been one of the sort of enduring mysteries uh, in true crime circles for a while, you know, that the six-year-old girl, this innocent girl could be found killed, you know, and that you have to imagine the level of brutality and sadism that could drive someone to do this is almost unthinkable. And it really troubles a lot of people that it happened and that to this day, we don't really know who was responsible. And it, certainly it's been a very hotly debated issue about who was responsible. And generally it falls into one of two main camps, either believing that somebody in the house, uh, you know, somebody in the house, uh, and there were, there were three people in the house. It was her father, John Ramsey, who was this millionaire businessman. He had been running a computer reseller company known as Access Graphics, which uh, basically was a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin, rather interesting. And so 
the company the company access graphics had just breached the you know billion dollars in revenue to just reach that point so he was doing quite well for himself he was a millionaire very wealthy well connected would go you know yachting and sailing in uh, lake michigan for example would go it was very just well connected with the social scene in in boulder colorado where they lived uh her mother patsy ramsey who was a former beauty pageant winner in west virginia and then went on to uh, study advertising. She worked for some advertising agencies for companies like Coca-Cola uh, for a while. And then uh, her brother, Burke Ramsey, who was uh, nine years old, just three years older than her, those were the three people who were living in the house. And so the sort of the big divide in the case was whether it whether she was killed by one of those three people in the house, uh, either John or Patsy or Burke, or whether she was killed by some intruder who broke in and you know, tried to presumably sexually assault her uh, and ended up resulting in her death. And really the problem with this case, at least the way a lot of people have looked at the case, is that there is these simple theories, whether you know Ramsey, a Ramsey person did it and uh, there's no intruder or you know an intruder did it and the Ramsey family is totally innocent. All these theories seem you know like they're trying to encompass too many facts that are apparently contradictory if you try to force it into one of those two belief systems. And, you know, to give an example uh, of how things are so contradictory, you know, when you look at the medical evidence, the general consensus is that uh, John Bonet was not just sexually abused at the time she was killed that she was also sexually abused chronically, that she had been abused before the night of her death as well. And what that strongly indicates is that somebody who had access to JonBenet was, you know, was molesting her sexually beforehand. So, and if the sexual abuse was also present at the time of her death, that also strongly suggests that uh, her death and this pre prior ongoing molestation were linked with each other. So, you know, the, the, the likely fact, you know, this is agreed on by most medical pathologists who study the case that she had been chronically sexually abused makes it very difficult to believe that her family did not somehow, you know, have something to do with this.